Folks, the race for the rainbow jersey is quickly approaching, and you can catch all of the action from the upcoming UCI Road World Championships on Flow Bikes. If you live in the United States and Canada, you can watch all UCI World Championship events live and on demand. This includes track, cyclocross, mountain bike, road, and more. Plus, viewers worldwide can access daily content including exclusive on-site coverage, in-depth interviews, expert analysis, and plenty of other content you won't find anywhere else. Subscribe now at flowbikes.com forward slash velonews. That is flobikes.com forward slash velonews. And when you purchase a Flowbike subscription, you'll get access to the entire Flow Sports network of over 25 sports. Don't miss out. Sign up at flowbikes.com forward slash velonews. That is flobikes.com forward slash velonews. Okay, let's get on with today's podcast. Welcome back. Welcome back to the Vel News Podcast. Fred Dreyer coming to you on, yes, yet another busy Tuesday here at the actual Velo News World Headquarters, the new uh, Outside Inc. slash Velo News slash all the other brands uh, headquarters here in downtown Boulder, Colorado. We're recording this today in a nondescript conference room in the bowels of the world headquarters. And it's a very fitting uh, location to be recording this because this is a, a location not unlike where we launched the very first Velo News podcast way back in 2016. And uh, memories of that first Fellow News Podcast are very much on the mind today because folks, listeners, friends, readers, this is a momentous episode of the Vela News Podcast. It's my final episode of the Vela News Podcast. Um, I am leaving Velo News after five years of being editor-in-chief, uh, after being with the magazine for a total 10 years, and I've taken an editorial position with uh, Outside Magazine. But um, yeah, I have so enjoyed... Being on the podcast, being uh, with the magazine, writing for villainews.com, and just uh, being a part of this brand. And I couldn't think, I was, I was thinking, I was like, how do I do a send off farewell uh, News podcast? What's an appropriate way to do this? And I wanted to have some guests on from both the past, the present, and the future of Velonews. And so I have assembled a all-star team of hot takers for this final Fred episode of the Velo News podcast, representing the past of Velo News. It's Spencer Paulison. Spencer, welcome. Thanks, Fred. I'm I'm the ghost of Christmas past, right? Sort of that sort. It's a little early for Christmas, yeah. but I'm I'm ready. I'm psyched to be here. I'm looking forward to your um, long-form exposés on uh, how granola and trail mix are manufactured yeah. outside, yeah. and also. Maybe some in-depth hiking boot reviews. Um, it's great content. That's what I tell people. people love. I'm going to be the stand-up paddleboard base jumping editor Ooh. at uh, Outside. Yeah. Um, representing the future of Velo News, Saib O'Shea calling in from the Isle of Man. Saib, welcome to the Fred Says Goodbye podcast. Thank you for having me. I don't think I've ever been called the future of anything, but I'll take it. <laughs> Um, Saib uh, has been on Velo News staff here for uh, the better part of the last uh, four, five, six months. I don't know. It seems very fast and like you've always been here at the same time, which I feel like is the sign of a good fit when you can't really um, say, well, yeah, that person started uh, April 2nd, uh, 2001 at exactly 5 p.m. because I've been counting every hour since then. Uh, Saib, you have been kicking enormous butt and you're about to go kick some more butt for us at the World Championships. Are you prepared to board an airplane and go see a bike race in person? Um, I, I think I am. I've kind of mentally been building up to it now for the last few days. Uh, I haven't been on an airplane since July last year. So over over a year, I've been been on my little island for, for a bit over a year, apart from one day when I got a boat to England. Um, that was, uh, you know, exciting. So, yeah, I'm starting a, a big, my own grand tour. It's a multinational grand tour starting in Belgium with the world's moving into France for, for Paris-Roubaix with the first ever women's Paris-Roubaix and then off back to, to England for the women's tour, which was uh, postponed from, from the summer and then back home sometime in October. 
Yeah, I was telling people that I'm trying to get a whole year's worth of bike race travel in for Sive in a week and a half. So, um, Sive is going to be on the road. You can follow her on Twitter and on VeloNews.com. And I am so psyched to finally get you back at the races. I'm just bummed that I'm not going to be there in person for it because I've seen Sive work in person at bike races. It's a sight to be seen. She talks to everyone multiple times and is just like this chattering, bubbly ball of energy on the, on the buses afterwards. So, Sive, we're going to unleash you at the bike races and representing the past, the present, the future, tomorrow, yesterday, the beating heart of Vela News, Andrew Hood himself coming to us from the man cave in Spain. Uh, Andy Hood, you are also going to the bike races, back to the bike races, because I feel like COVID interrupted your bike race attendance for like a couple months, but you just kind of like kept trucking through the thing. This has not been that much of a deviation for you. Yeah, Fred, good to be here. It's a, it's sad to see you go, Freddie, and it's a shame we can't see you uh, one last time at the races. Uh, yeah, back to the races. I mean, last year, everything was uh, rescheduled in the fall. You know, we got through it, and then this year, it's been uh, almost back to normal. I just We just heard the news today that the, at the Belgian uh, World Championships there in Leuven, they're going to have open season for the crowd. So, I, it should be quite the spectacle with... Uh, I mean, there'll be millions of people on the sides of the road there for uh, the world championships. Are you prepared to get utterly lost driving around those confusing back roads of Flanders and like end up, you know, asking some farmer for directions to the to the finish line? Yeah, I, I expect to be lost. Uh, but the good thing about Belgium, there's always a pub in every little town and village along the way. So won't be lost for too long. <laughs> Two Jupilers, please. Or 10 Jupilers. Um, well, folks, for this um, very final Fred uh, News podcast. The format that I came up with was for us to, instead of debating the news or talking about the latest and greatest headline in the world of cycling, to look back at some of the bigger stories over the last five years, over my tenure at News, and then to offer some inflammatory, unvarnished, and utterly hot, hot takes on these topics. Like sort of like the not safe for work, but like might singe your hand takes like like the good supply, the good stuff, like the stuff that, you know, you, you haven't workshopped it that well. This is going to be the open venue for us to um, hit the launch button and just blast some nuclear takes into the podcast sphere. And listeners, um, the, the rule of thumb with this, this podcast is that, you know, you can't hold people accountable for their takes. Like this is sort of like, you know, this is the stones like experimenting on some new music in the basement of a club. Like, you know, this is not, these are not ready for primetime takes. They're kind of, uh, unvarnished fake news. So. The info wars of cycling podcasts. Exactly. Exactly. This is the info wars of cycling podcasts we're going to listen to. And I have a list here that um, Spencer helped me compile and we're going to go through them. And like I am like a, like a third grade teacher. I'm going to request takes. I'm going to pull the takes out of all of you and we're going to go from there. So are you ready, panel of hot takers? I'm seeing thumbs up and nods on the computer screen. We're going to get to it. Um, first topic on the list, Chris Froome. Chris Froome, four-time Tour de France champion, won a bunch of Grand Tours, yet remains one of the most polarizing cyclists today. Folks, why did people hate Chris Froome? Why did they hate Chris Froome? Who wants to, who wants to start off on this one? Why do they hate Chris Froome? That's the, that's the question, that's the question that I've been wondering myself covering Chris Froome all these years because, you know, once you meet Chris Froome, he is probably the nicest guy in the peloton. I mean, he's one of the nicer guys in professional cycling. Uh, I think that it's been shown multiple times. Any race you go to, the guy does not really have any enemies within the sport. But why is he such a controversial uh, person? Because people just can't believe what he did. I mean, his the background story of uh, Froome, you know, coming from, uh, you know, Africa, really just, you know, one year – 2010, not be able to finish a race to the next year, almost winning the, well, he actually won the Welt Espana through a disqualification. Then the next year, almost beating Brad Wiggins. And then the next year winning the tour. Some people just believe that's just too sharp of a, of, of a curve. You know, it's, we're talking about bike racing here, not Bitcoin. So those steep vertical lines are, are just, you know, some people just cannot take that for what it is. I mean, you know, his Sabudumal case didn't help all these, uh, Reports of uh, of uh, jiffy bags 
you know, the, the, the legacy there at Sky has been tarnished and Froome is a victim of that. Bike racing, not Bitcoin. I love it. That is our first amazing take. All right. Who wants to go next? Why did people hate Chris Froome? I, was, I think um, the, the team that he was a part of really didn't help as well over the years because um, Sky kind of came in these quite brash, um, kind of bold statements. Dave Brailsford, he's, you know, he's not the, the best people person. He doesn't like he's he, he, he was really good at what he does, but like he, he's not he's not the charmer. He doesn't you know, he doesn't really um, he rubs people up the wrong way, basically. And I think being a part of that team, you know, people were always going to be out for Chris Froome and also being the first kind of, you know, multi in a uh, inning row Tour de France winner since Lance Armstrong. People were always going to be trying to pick the problems out of it. Um, I think, you know, he was, he was probably doomed to fail, um, from, from the start, but also it didn't help, you know, like Andy says, he's, he's a really nice guy. He's very friendly, but he's not a big personality and he comes across as a bit awkward sometimes when he's sort of put under pressure and put under questioning. And so, you know, people just couldn't, couldn't find something to kind of cling to and, yeah, I think it was just a cacophony of things that really just didn't didn't work out for him. You know, um, I think I think Chris Froome might be undead. Yeah, he's very pale, very skinny, looks really like kind of mechanical and awkward. Uh, doesn't pass the smell test for me. You what? know, it's like in the Terminator when the dogs, you know, you can count on them to bark when they see the Terminators come up to the door. I feel like dogs would be barking at Chris Froome when he's walking by the house. It's like. Something about him. I don't know. Wait, so Spencer, you're labeling the Chris Froome hate up to unbed, undead or zombie bias. He might be. Okay. I'm saying he might be. I haven't seen evidence that he isn't. Well, it's not necessarily. It could be a zombie or it could also be a vampire. A little more vampire vibes for me, uh-huh. given how lanky and, and pale he is, like I said. Um, yeah, it's not like an Edward Cullen vampire thing for me. It's more of like a... Uh, you know, old school Bram Stoker Dracula thing. Okay. Um, yeah. So I would, eh, yeah. These are phenomenal takes. So we have, uh, people don't like him because of Dave Brailsford. Ding. People don't like him because of Sky Racing. Ding. People don't like him because of the trajectory. Ding. And then potential vampire zombie vibes. Ding as well. I, no way of not knowing. Exactly. I'm going to come in though with my take, which is that I think that all of this Chris Froome hate can be traced back to the very primal, very primordial very like base level human um, emotion of thinking that Chris Froome looks bad on a bike. Mm. Yeah. yeah. Which is that he looks real awkward. His attacks instead of big gear out of the saddle, swashbuckling contador style where these washing machine high cadence, goofy elbows out uh, staring at the stem thing. Hey, it's been written about a million times, but I think there's just like a base level of like cycling fans looking that and arching their eyebrows and being eh, let you <laughs> Let you. Cycling's all about looking good. You That's true. That. So, yeah. I mean, if you don't pass the fashion show, then come on. But I'm with you, Hoodie. I actually, you know, Chris from really nice guy, actually has really interesting things to say. Uh, I was at some of those post Tour de France uh, interviews where he was like answering every question, you know, very well and having a lot to say. And yet still the hate remained. Okay. Let's go on to our next topic for takes. This is a one courtesy of Spencer. Um, who was a bigger WTF winner, Alberto Betiel winning Tour of Flanders or Garrett Thomas winning the Tour de France? And who is the next big WTF winner? Um, for me, I think Betiel is a bigger WTF for me because, first of all, when do you ever see an Italian dude win a Northern Classic? True. Well, no offense, but I mean, it's just not, not a typical thing. The, strange, it would, the only thing stranger than that would be would be a Spanish guy winning Flanders, let's face it. It's just not a typical thing, but I don't know why. But Garen Thomas, yeah, you know, I, I think, like, the stars aligned for him, and it's been proven that a good time trial engine can win a Grand Tour, and sure, he has that, no question. He just had a good day and or had a good month, really. So for me, Betyal, that was a little more of a, well, you know, Guess what? That that attack actually stuck. The the one one in a hundred times that attack sticks. It happened at Tour of Flanders. So good for him. And for the future, you know who I got to pick for this, right, Fred? Who's that? It's Taco Vanderhorn. Oh, I it's got to it. be Taco. Taco is definitely gonna win. 
Flanders, maybe? Yeah. Certainly, like, a major, major northern classic. Flanders or Rouvet, I think. So sad. He's, he's always there. He's always in the mix. Spencer over here was, like, he was, like, a Taco Vanderhorn fan way before Taco Vanderhorn was the thing. Like, when he was still racing on Room Pot, we, like, were looking at the start list, and he was like, oh, my God, this guy's name is Taco Vanderhorn. He has the best name in all of pro cycling. Like, we need to jump on his super fan bandwagon. So, like, I mean, you were talking – this is this is basically like being a fan of the Beatles when they were, like, in Hamburg, <laughs> like, playing in 1962 or whatever. Because I'm with you. I think Vander Taco is on to great things, not just being part of a combination plate of victories. I think he is um, – you know, he's going to get the whole enchilada – if you know what I mean. Um, bigger, bigger WTF winner. I'm with you on Betiol. Also because um, he races for the um, EF Education Garmin Cannondale whatever program, which I, you know, when I first came into Vela News in 2016, I was like, man, why is it that the US team, you know, this Garmin team is basically the Cleveland Browns of like cycling? Because at that point, I think they had gone two years without a world tour win. And since then, I've had to eat my lunch uh, and eat my words because they, you know, they just won three stages of the Welta. They've been on podiums and grand tours. They've done really good things. So I think if anything, my hate or not my hate, but my disparaging of like the Garmin program in 2016, um, kicked off a real renaissance for that team with Betiol winning and, uh, you know, Rigo on the podium of the tour and stuff like that. Um, all right. I'll kick it to Cyber Hoodie. What do you, what can you say about WTF winners who you think is going to be a next big one? And, and what do you think of Betiol? versus Garrett Thomas. So I've been thinking about this while you've been talking. I, I think Betty all uh, he's got to win that like surprise. I think Thomas, you know, he was sort of showing signs of being a good Grand Tour rider and he kind of worked at it and, you know, it worked out. So I think Betty is definitely the more surprising um, WTF winner. For, my, for the next one, so I've been thinking about this hard and my pick is going to be Egan Bernal winning um, the Tour of Flanders. <laughs> oh, I love it. Oh, oh, that is a hot take. Not ready for prime time. You heard it here, folks. I didn't even think of a, a South American <laughs> winning a Northern Classic, let alone Spanish or Italian, dude. Wow. I remember when Nairo Quintana raced uh, Dwarves a few years back and got bounced around on the uh, cobblestones. That was fun yeah. to watch. And, um, he, Bernal did really well at um, Strada Bianchi. So, you know... And he was up against some, you know, big, burly Northern Classics riders. So, you know, I think with a little bit of luck, um, you know, that he could he could win win the Tour of Flanders. Paris Bay probably a stretch too far. That would probably break him. But I think, yeah, I'm going to go. You heard it here now. 2021, Egan Bernal is going to win the Tour of Flanders. Oh, I love it. I love it. Hoodie, you are 2022. You you are agreeing. I can tell you're just ready for this uh, to happen, right? We're going to will it into existence. No. Yeah, we'd love to see it. You know, back in the days when, uh, you know, a real bike rider would do everything, right? The classics, the grand tours, the, you know, the one days, those days are long gone. I mean, uh, my, my uh, WTF winner was kind of just what the whole Jew of Italia was last year during the COVID. Such a bizarre uh, year and season when they had Teo. Uh, Gio Hagen Hart, you know, I don't see that guy ever winning any, a big race like that again. That's just my personal WT. Oh, hot take. <laughs> I don't, you know, maybe I'm wrong. We'll see. Uh, but it, I mean, for me, my all time, you know, future WTF would be if a French rider wins the Tour de France again. <laughs> oh, shots fired. I love it. I love it. <laughs> it's so true. Okay, on to the next one. Anna van der Breggen versus Annemiek van Vluten. Who had the better career? We're talking multiple Olympic medals, world championship wins, murdering people on the bike, very strong. Um, Sive, I'm going to start with you. Van der Breggen versus Annemiek. If you're, if you're drafting a team, who do you draft first? Who has had the better career? That's a really tough question. Um, I would, I think I would probably go for, Vanderbreggen because she's she's had her good like her good period um has been like so long and throughout her entire career um and you know the way that she's done it and you know built up and pretty much going out on the top um you know her, she's not too good at the moment but still like this year she's she's won Omloop she's won um the Giro she's she's had a spectacular final year even if she does kind of go out with a, a small whimper uh next weekend so yeah 
I'm going to go with Underbroken. Follow-up question for you, Hoodie. Uh, the aliens have come down <laughs> and um, they are uh, wanting to take over Earth. And uh, they have devised a competition involving competitive road bike racing. And we need to volunteer a tribute, female tribute, to take on the aliens to race for the future of mankind. Um, are you volunteering Anna Vanderbregen or Annemiek Van Vluten? I would uh, offer up uh, to our defense uh, Annemiek. She is a little bit extraterrestrial sometime herself. So uh, she would be a good one to fight against the aliens. Um I think she's had, you know, if you look at the two careers, I think she's had more of a dramatic career. I mean, maybe it's more of her personality too. She's just, I think, more of a fighter. And uh, whereas uh, Anna has more of a, a pure engine. My impression is that Van Vluten is a little more that classic pure climber than Vanderbregen, which I think is really cool. But at the same time, she's just so versatile for time trials. So in that sense, I almost say... Van Vluten over Vanderbregen just because she's a bit more of a shapeshifter like that. Mm, shapeshifter. Almost like a superhero, you might say. I'm going to go with Anna Vanderbregen because um, I just, I don't know. She she had that other gold medal from uh, 2016. And she I believe she had two medals that year and then a bronze. So the three medals versus two. It's kind of apples and oranges, but I'm going to go with her. Okay, on to the next topic for hot takes. This speaks to the health of pro road racing in America and uh, what we can expect in the future and the past. So the Tour of California dies in 2019. Um, this was a sign of what? What was this a sign of? Spencer, I'm going to start with you. When you look at the death of the uh, Amgen Tour of California as it pertains to road biking in America, what's it a sign of? Um, <laughs> probably a sign that... Um Whoever it was at Amgen who really liked cycling, he maybe retired or forgot canned or something. <laughs> they lost their sugar daddy at Amgen and um, realized it wasn't possible to put on a large-scale, you know, week-long bike race in a country that generally does little or anything, little if anything, to support bike racing at a municipal level in that. So uh, it's a sponsorship thing. Yeah. It's just so, so hard to, to, to convince a major sponsor that's worthwhile and and even still, when you do, it's not like they're not. <laughs> Amgen's not like making more money because they sponsor the Tour of California. That's just something they did. Um, it's just not a, a realistic business proposition. Maybe that guy like had a boss like come in, get hired. You know, they're like, "Hey, this is Dave. You're gonna love working with him. He's really new, real friendly. Uh, he's also gonna be looking at your budget. Ooh, yeah. yeah, he's gonna be scrutinizing <laughs> hey, what's that. This uh, ten million dollar line. Oh, that? No, yeah. You know, I like biking and uh, networking, and um, <laughs> networking. it's good for networking. And uh, yeah, oh, oh, that's going away. It's a bummer. It's too bad. It is. Know? It is it's too not bad. Good times going to the Tour of California and. It's, it's not easy to put on a real pro-level bike race in the U.S. Odie, what says you? Uh, America's only world tour race going away. What was that a sign of? I think it was a sign of the decline of, of road racing in the United States. It's been kind of just going downhill before that and since then. But it also dovetailed right in to the gravel boom. I mean, uh, by 2019, I mean, gravel had been percolating around for a while. But 2019 was the year that it really exploded. And since then, gravel has been going straight up, just like Bitcoin. Uh, whereas the, uh, you know, whereas uh, road racing has been kind of like my stock portfolio going down. I'm with you. And so, you know, Phil Anschutz uh, of a AEG, which famously owned and uh, promoted this race, I think that that was a sign that Phil Anschutz had secretly gotten into gravel racing mm -hmm. and was like growing a swizzly Swisher mustache and riding around with all manners of experimental bags on his bicycle. And uh, Tour of California going away was just a sign that we're going to see a multi-day bikepacking, gravel, Instagram-friendly, experiential race popping up from the dusty ashes of the Amgen Tour of California. How about you, Sive? I mean, it's, you know, I know you don't necessarily always have your finger on the pulse of what's going on in American cycling, but uh, what was your take on it? Um, well, looking looking at it from from the outside, kind of, I got the feeling the, the lower level domestic racing was kind of uh, dipping down and that had a, an impact on the, the higher level races. Also, I think the, the problem with the Tour of California was there wasn't enough other stuff around for the European riders to come over and kind of spend like a good chunk of time. And so, you know, the, the organizers are always having to fork out money to get like the big names and, and that, and that was never going to be a, a sustainable 
thing. Um, yeah, like the you know, if if there were more more events either side of it, you know, you can make it like a three week month long trip to the US in the middle of the season, which is always going to be a challenge. Then maybe it could have lasted a little bit longer. Um, and you know, with the expansion of gravel. You know, maybe it was a sign that actually the U.S. needed more inward-looking races than outward-looking races. They could have had like a, a gravel series go on afterwards, and uh, you know, tour California, come over for that, and stay for the Mustachio Special. On to the next take, then piggybacking off of that gravel. It's like Spencer. I'm going to start with you on this one. Uh, gravel is it a fad or is gravel here to stay? Hot takes only. I think that gravel racing is a fad. But gravel riding is here to stay because the, the gravel racing stuff is super fun. I do it a fair bit myself, but man, it's turning into this very, very expensive endeavor that is not at all like the grassroots racing it once was. It's not at all like the, you know, how it started. So yeah, some people still like it and some people will, will, will remain involved in that sort of thing. But I don't think it's realistic to sustain that kind of investment and interest from just average people who are more on the recreational side but it's it's a great thing because we've got so many awesome bikes now that can get out and ride these quiet roads that are much safer and more fun so on the, on the balance it's a positive thing but it's just these races are turning into this i mean like like more than 200 bucks for a race entry fee come on that's that's bananas like that's so much money for a single bike race entry you know what i'm saying like, say that to a triathlete well yeah but i mean you know you know <laughs> bike racing it's famously for cheapskates and uh it's just you know you got to hit that that price point for them. that's true i think actually i see gravel morphing from you know these expensive extremely long distance races into maybe like shorter like circuit type events, maybe pay like 35 bucks for it. It's on a Saturday. Maybe move it from the summer into the fall and have it, um, maybe you do like multiple laps on a gravel circuit, maybe some barriers where you jump off and uh, run around. I don't know. It's experimental. It's just a thought. I don't know. Yeah. Maybe hit some cowbells. Okay. Maybe maybe have a bunch of Belgian people named Gerben do it. Can we find a way to make the gear more specific to this type of racing so that you can't use the gear for other gravel? Uh, That'd be really nice if it was this very specific, you know, you get some weird tires, you have to maybe glue on. Yeah, yeah. Just make it really, really equipment intensive gravel is coming That's spencer gravel's coming uh spencer uh what about hoodie you your take gravel you've been you've watched this curiosity from afar from the other side of the atlantic do you see it as a fad or do you see it as a uh, something that is now calcified in the heart of american cycling yeah it's interesting hearing uh spencer's comments um just over here in europe it's not nearly as big of a deal as it is in the united states right now um there are some big gravel events and there's some more popping up over here it's more these ultra endurance events multi-day kind of uh trans-siberian kind of you know endurance uh adventure things that are getting quite popular getting quite grippy among the the, the adherents to that but but i totally agree with spencer in terms of uh riding you know it's like more cars on the road and more iphones people checking their uh, what's up by this ride man it's like I rarely go on the road these days, and it's almost all gravel or mountain biking, which is fun still, too. Putty gets the soul of gravel, for sure. Well, of course. He has that amazing facial hair. Exactly. Uh, so, what about Isle of Man? I mean, I know they have the um, the motocross thing. Are they going to have, like, a big gravel race where you go do the ring, you know, and time trial style? No, it's not Isle of Man, it's not motocross. <gasps> or motorcycle. We do have motocross here. We have some good uh, trials bike riders here, but yeah, that's motor uh, motorbikes, road motorbikes, like super bikes and stuff like that on tarmac, and they go about two hundred miles an hour. Um, so it's a little bit, a little bit different. We don't really have much in the way of like gravel tracks over here. So that's I don't think that's ever going to be like a, a massive thing here. But I can see it definitely being a very like strong amateur thing. In, in the format that it's in, I don't see it lasting as like a, a pro thing because the, the, there's only so much investment and money that you can put into things if, if you're not getting like proper television exposure. Um, and in the format that it's in, it's not very television friendly. Um, it's, you know, who wants to watch a guy ride for like nine hours on a straight road, whether it be gravel or not? Um, I mean, like I mentioned Strata Bianchi earlier, that, that kind of show that is a gravel race. You know, that's that's a pro level gravel race with a bit of a, a difference. Um, 
you know, I think there needs to be something more like that to to really kind of draw out the big pro pro level stuff. Shots fired at Outside TV's coverage of SBT Gravel. Yeah, holy cow. Um, yeah, we're gonna have to go wow. and edit edit this out for uh, yeah for the suit. It was nice knowing you all. Uh, I will say, as someone who has watched the entire Iron Man broadcast, uh, <laughs> I am the target audience, the target demo of weirdos who will happily watch a uh, lone rider out there at a dusty gravel road while the announcers try to think of something to say and like pitch every sponsor like five times and be like, well, I bet they hope they had the Thudbuster uh, XXL uh, seat post out there because uh, Bill's hitting the uh, washboard section. Um, Gravel's here to stay, folks. It's no fat. I love it. It's, yeah, hot take. Um, okay, on to the next hot take topic. What is the ideal length in distance for a stage race for uh, women cycling? This is, a, this is a question that we have posed to many women cyclists because, you know, you do hear the feedback of, hey, make the races just as long as the men's. Let's have a three-week race. Then you talk to some of the women's uh, pro road races and they're like, you know, the distance isn't what makes a race interesting. A lot of times with uh, our races, we like the distance because it kind of bottles up the action and attacks, et cetera, et cetera. Sive, you've done some reporting on this topic. What do you think is the ideal stage race length for women's racing? I think there's room for a three-week race. I don't think we need to see the ridiculously long, like 220-kilometer stages, you know, the that – which are kind of they're all about like wearing out but they're you know i don't think we need that but if we have like three weeks of somewhere between 120 150k stages every day then i think you know there's there's space for that and that would be an exciting um an exciting race uh but i think the ideal length is maybe like 10 10 days 10 11 days yeah, this is a, a, a question that gets banded around a lot. I mean, but but like Fred said, when you actually talk to the riders and you talk to the sport directors and team managers, they all seem to kind of agree that a three-week Grand Tour doesn't work for a couple of reasons. And one reason they say is that the calendar is already so filled up with other races that if you put in a, a one Grand Tour length race, it would cause other races to have to maybe get moved off the calendar as well as you know, right now you know they'll tell you that um that the, the depth of the peloton is not really deep enough to really support a full-on grand tour in the middle of a huge already very busy season and this is just what they're telling me um you know the question is you know do you want to see the same person win every stage every day you know enemy van vluten or whoever so yeah i mean I think that's a question that has to be answered by the, the sport themselves. Kind of passing the buck there, but I like it. I'll <laughs> accept it. I'll accept it. How about you, Spencer? Yeah, I, having – I mean, more from a fan's perspective, not not really having actually talked to a lot of women's cyclists about this sort of thing, but from my from my perspective, watching some of these races, the Giro Rosa remains the, the, the key stage race for pro women's cycling, and I think that – the, the ones that I've seen and watched, it, it typically packs in all about all the action you could ask for in, in, you know, about 10 days or so. I can't remember exactly how many stages are in it, but you, you watch that and I don't know if if there's more to, more, to, more to be said on the road, so to speak. You know, the, the winner emerges and it, I'm not sure how much would change if you, if you drew it out to a, another week or two. So I think... For, for the pinnacle of it, that, that Giro Rosa length is great. And um, there's plenty of three and four day stage races that I think also deliver a fair bit of action too. Yeah, that's what I was going to say. Is like, I am all for trying out a three-week Grand Tour for women and the 10-day ones too. But like, man, some of these five-day uh, women's stage races are freaking awesome. Women's Tour, um, some of the ones, you know, Lardash is going on right now. It's a little bit longer than that. But, um, you know, it's sort of like every stage counts. And like, it really means that the overall winner has to be on it. So I'm kind of torn. I kind of, I do kind of like the four and five-day format, but I'm, I'm eager to see. So I have a pretty watered-down take on that. You know, one other thing I'll say too is from a budget standpoint, most of the women's teams just don't have the money probably to really effectively run a, a, a full-on three-week grand tour type event so if you can have more affordable race opportunities for them that are still high level and putting them in front of the fans i think that's great because it it widens the scope of what they're able to do bring more riders out there bring more teams out there and make it make it more more feasible uh we're all hoping and praying for that three-week grand tour to come down the pike it'll answer some of our questions um 
We got a couple more questions to blaze through, but we are going to take a quick break here from our sponsor. Folks, you heard me say it before, the race for the rainbow jersey is quickly approaching. You can catch all the action from the UCI Road World Championships on Flow Bikes. If you live in the U.S. and Canada, you can watch all UCI World Championship events live and on demand. This includes track, cyclocross, mountain bike, road, and more. Don't miss out. Subscribe now at flowbikes.com slash velonews. That is F-L-O-bikes.com forward slash velonews. Okay. Let's get back to the podcast. Second half of the Fred Goodbye podcast. Hot takes. We're going to do some of these uh, speed round style because we have a number of these to get through. Uh, next line item, super tuck, more like super uh, blank. Um, Hoodie, we're going to start with you. What What is your opinion after a few months of this? What do we need to do about the super tuck? Bring it back. It's a super. It's the it's the super position. I love it. Bring it back. Uh, no, I'm I'm happy for it to to stay banned. Um, I think you know it's it entices younger riders to maybe try it out when they're when they're riding, and um, I think that you know the pro bike riders should be representing what the younger kids are are doing. So um, I'm I'm happy for it to to stay banned, and Richard Carapaz should probably pay more attention to the rules. Hot take. Spencer, do you find yourself um, going to Super Tuck now on a descent and then you immediately pull out of it because you're like, not only does the UCI's jurisdiction include the Tour de France, but it also includes my recreational rides? Oh, yeah. I've been fined so many times, Fred. It's ridiculous. That, uh, like, it's like a swear jar type situation where I got to save money for it. Um, no, I. you know what they need to do with the Super Tuck thing? They need to do, it's sort of like, in, I don't know if you guys watch Formula One at all. But when they enable DRS for the zones where you can like flip open the wing on the back of the car and make it go a little faster, they need to have super tuck zones on the course oh, where this you, is amazing. Like, you can strategize and plan ahead and then and then deploy your super tuck when you reach the banner. They could sponsor opportunity. Super tuck zone sponsored by uh, I don't know, Amgen or something. Um, it's it's a huge opportunity. And I mean practically speaking a breakaway, especially a solo breakaway, it's going to have a better chance if, if that rider can, can ride a super tuck because the momentum of a peloton on a, on a fast descent is it's always going to be better than someone just doing that awkward crouch thing where they can't really fully super tuck. So bring it back, do the DRS thing, make some money off the sponsors. Of all the takes that I've heard today, I actually think that is like the the one that the crosshairs of like weird take that is also an amazing idea. We should absolutely have super tuck zones uh, in pro cycling. I I was going to come in with mandatory super tucks, like have a stage, like a downhill time trial where everyone was like required to super tuck. That's like something that Jiro would do. Yeah. They were going to do a downhill time trial, weren't they? Oh my God. I wish the Jiro would absolutely do a mandatory super tuck time trial. And I would come out of retirement to watch it um absolutely so my take is super tucks for all forced super tucking yes um all right um newfangled bike tech you know back in 2016 when i came back to vela news yes there was electronic shifter yes there was uh road disc um but it was sort of like gaining momentum you saw a lot of pros riding it but it was like av- and, and rich people but like it wasn't sort of everywhere now like your grandma rides di2 and it has to is complaining about that her calipers are rubbing and everyone seems to have adopted newfangled bike tech but my question is fancy newfangled bike tech versus the old stuff clincher tires rim brakes cable actuated shifters not like the really old stuff but you know like you know like it's like 2000s era bike tech uh, what do you got, Hoodie? We're going to start with you because I know that you are a person who still dabbles in older bike tech. But he invests in Bitcoin. Mm-hmm. Yeah, unfortunately, I didn't buy enough Bitcoin, so I can't afford to buy a $15,000 bike. That's my problem. So, yeah, I'm still old uh, caliper brakes. Uh, I do have my gravel bike has uh, disc brakes on it. So, you know, I'm sufficiently modern in that level. Uh, but, hey... Vincenzo Nibli doesn't ride on disc brakes, and there's a few other top-level pros that don't like him either. So, uh, as long as the brakes work and the uh, 
in the in the bike is uh, has a motor in it, you know, ideally that it's good for me. Sive, spinning spoons of death, spinning knives of death. Um, are you all about the new bike stuff, or do you like uh, old school? I'm a bit more old school. I like my bike not to kind of stop, like run out of battery on the way around. Um, also, I don't I don't find myself ever in a position that I'm going fast enough that I need disc brakes. Um, so you know, I think. Well, also I'm a cheapskate, so it's just easier to get a. A normal rim brake bike, um, crappy old uh, like levers, no, none of this electronic stuff. So when you're descending the Isle of Man's largest mountain, uh, which is an elevation of 72 feet, you don't find yourself like, uh, you know, getting up to like 100k per hour? I'll have you know, we have one mountain, um, an actual mountain. Uh, no, no, I'm, I'm a bit of a nervous descender, really. Um, so yeah, I don't, I don't build up too much speed. Spencer, I feel like you of all people are going to have the most educated take on this because, uh, you ride the fancy new stuff, but you also work for the pros closet where you are in daily contact with not just you like, shammies. yeah, you shammies, <laughs> uh, old stuff, rim brakes. I mean, old, old, old stuff, but also sort of like the nineties, two thousand stuff. Where do you, where do you fall? Yeah, we've got the whole museum and all that. And by the way, we don't sell use shammies anymore. So don't bring them by again, Fred. Sorry. Yeah. Um, I think here's some thoughts. So we're talking pro level, I assume here, right? Just whatever, man. Well, I mean, you know, for, for, for us, it's great to have modern technology. The braking's more powerful. The shifting's easier, all that, you know, it, it works great. No question there for the pro racers. Now, I think some new rules are in order. If they want to use the modern technology, I think they got to learn to work on it themselves and they can't have mechanics. This is, great, like, this is a great idea. This is a great idea. Like back in the day shit, you know, like back when the tour first started, you couldn't have any mechanical assistance. Here's another thought. If you want to super tuck in a race, maybe you're required to ride a vintage bike to offset the advantage. Or you could have people be riding vintage bikes as like a penalty yeah. instead of like fines. Because I mean, come on, these guys, like you find them like a couple thousand euro, it's, that's pocket change. They find that in their couch every day. But, um, you know, you put these multi-millionaires, you put them on some crappy, like, vintage bike, if they, whatever, take a feed inside of 20K, or if they're, I don't know, what other things do you do illegal these days in bike racing? I love it. Like, yeah, it's just like, that, that's like the penalty bike for the next day. Maybe it's well, maybe it's like the, the yellow Mavic neutral bike that Jens Vogt had to ride in that one race where he... You know, he was like a little kid's bike type situation. Yeah, it's like, hey, Julian Alaphilippe, you took an illegal feed uh, outside 22K to go. You have to now get on this uh, straight gauge aluminum uh, bike from 1999 with like eight speed. Yeah. And instant uh, penalty too. You pull up to him with the car and you're like, get on this bike right now. Yeah. I don't care if you got different cleats on your shoes. Deal with it. <laughs> yeah, it has a 23 in the rear. Yeah. Good, good luck with that. Whatever. Rigo won that sprint in the Tour de France when he was in the 11. Yeah, he was fine. Um, I, I'm with you. I, I love the new bike technology. My bike right now has all sorts of newfangled bike technology. And because of, I know you, because of newfangled bike technology, I have called my wife to come pick me up on the side of the road way more times than I did beforehand because I'm like, oh, man, Bad forgot the multi-tool. Battery's dead. Oh, gee golly, this like tube doesn't work with my like tire setup. So um, it has definitely left me stranded more than a few times so Not in that quality time with the wife yeah i love your idea though of making bike racers work on their stuff because you know you have these vintage photos of these bike racers with like tubes around their neck from the you know the primordial days of the tour de france and to just see a picture of julian alaphilippe with like a bunch of like brake rotors in his like back pocket trying to, trying to plug a tire in the middle of a race or something <laughs> Totally. <laughs> Plug a tire and then carry a bunch of brake rotors and, oh, it's still, still rubbing. All right. Um, this one was a Spencer, uh, the name, the best exorcist to save cycling from the spirit of gravel. So the spirit of gravel has gotten us in trouble a few times this year with all of the unwritten rules versus the written rules. Yeah. And, uh, you know, can I saw it firsthand at Steamboat. I was there. Yeah. I you, was there. You totally saw it saw, of people, the cinch team, people taking le legal slash frowned upon uh, water bottle feeds and legal but frowned upon pacing um so first of all hoodie what do you make of gravel racing coming butting up against you know the written rules versus the unwritten rules like you must be just like laughing and rubbing your hands with glee as you see gravel racing every single day getting closer to pro road racing what do you make of like the hand wringing that's coming out of the gravel racing scene 
Yeah, it just reminds me of kind of the old days of, uh, I mean, I'm really showing my age by even saying this, but uh, the old days of snowboarding or mountain biking, you know, way back in the 80s and 90s when it really was kind of this rebel thing. And like what Spencer was saying earlier about how it's not just this kind of grassroots hippie thing or, you know, mustachioed thing. You know, it's becoming a big business. I mean, big sponsorships, big pros are doing this now. And uh, it's just it just reflects how the sport's changing. So I guess my answer to that would be it's like, yeah, the professional upper end is changing. If you want to race and not be wrapped up in all these rules, just get 20 of your friends and go out and have a little race. No one's stopping you from doing that. Uh, how about you, Sive? Uh, when you've seen all of these headlines on VeloNews.com about the spirit of gravel being violated by people who actually won? Well, the, the problem is with unwritten rules is they're not written and so you know, people can do whatever they want. And if if you want to have a certain way of racing, a certain way of doing things, then you're going to need rules. Or, you know, you just, you know, if you really want to protect it, then don't give any prize money. But I'm not going to say that because that would be mean. Because, um, you know, pe- once, you, once you start bringing in big prizes for things, people are going to do the things within the rules to be able to win. You know, we, we see it throughout sport. People will push... The rules, and if there are no rules, then you know stuff happens. It's like giving no boundaries to a kid, and then you kind of walk into the living room, and it's it's a mess. So yeah, you can't you can't have unwritten rules and then expect people to abide by them because I feel like the 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 bigger danger is though when there's the written rule and then there's the unwritten rules and people are able to like push it the other direction where it's like hey the written rule says you cannot take your blood out and like spin it and put it in a bag and store it for a few months and then put it back in like you can't do that but the unwritten rule says like yeah sure you could do that that's you know it's just slightly frowned upon but um, unwritten rules man we have these unwritten rules in in road cycling as well and there's always these like headbutting moments about it like does the peloton stop because tom dumoulin had to take a crap on the side of the road or like because somebody's wheel fell off you know the the unwritten rules so you know people can gripe about them but there's nothing to stop anybody doing anything you know most of the time the time that you kind of abide by the unwritten rules is because you you don't want somebody to do the same thing to you like when it happened like you know when, when everybody stops for a, a pee, you know, somebody doesn't try and take like 20 minutes up the road. And as we saw with Tom Dumoulin, nobody stopped. Yeah, but I bet it felt really good. It felt really good. Um, you know what, Fred? You know what gravel cycling needs? What's that? To exercise the spirit of spirit of gravel. Okay. It needs dick pound. Yeah. We need to get dick pound in here. Yeah. We need him to like really turn this into a serious serious racing situation with all like the rules written out to the T. He needs to be like pounding down people's doors to get this sorted out. He needs to be on the start line. He needs to be on the finish line regulating this. Like we need some hardcore rulemaking from the man himself, Dick Pound. IOC experience. Man, you know, who else who else could better do it? Uh okay. Um Primo's Roglitch. What do we make of this guy? Is Primoz Roglic cursed, everyone? We have seen him now. Uh, well, he, he exercised some demons winning his third Vuelta. But we've now seen him snatch victory, snatch defeat from the hands of victory in uh, three big races, including that Tour de France. And then this year, uh, looking so strong, probably the only guy who could challenge uh, uh, Pogacar and crashes out so early. Is Primoz Roglic cursed? And if so, what can we do? To exercise that curse, Hoodie, what do you make of old Rogla? If he's cursed, it's only because he's coinciding with his compatriot teenage race sensation, uh, Tade Pogaccia. Otherwise, I'd love to have his curse. I mean, the guy is like winning every race that he's basically... St- the only races he hasn't won that he's started, I believe, are the Giro and the Tour. Every other race he started, he's won. The stage races. Um, you know, the guy, he, he's by far the most consistent and steady performer on the world tour right now. He and Pogaccia are just head and shoulders above everybody else. Um, so we'll see. I mean, uh, the bad thing for him is that he's coming into, the, the, you know, Pogacar is coming into his very best years, and that might seem to relegate uh, Roglic to runner-up status of the tour. We'll see. But he's the only guy that can take it to Pogacar right now, for sure. Uh, Spencer, did you know that Roglic used to be a ski jumper? What? Yeah. Ska jumper. That's a great storyline. Someone, Sk- someone should write a feature on that. Ska jump. Uh, Ska jumper. Uh, do you think he's cursed? 
No, I don't. But have you guys seen that South Park episode where there's the succubus? You know what I'm talking about? I, I am familiar with the concept Where of the succubus. Like someone like just sort of like steals the soul and energy out of another person. Uh-huh. I think that's what's going on because Roglish and Pogacar, they're pretty chummy, you know? And I think every time they're with each other, you know, I think I think that's when Roglish loses his mojo. Oh. And that's when Pogacar just like takes it from him, basically. It's, it's happened in the Tour de France the last couple of years and... Oh, how interesting. Didn't you notice that Pogacar is going to race world championships for Slovenia and Roglic isn't? Mm. So you think it's it's kind of like a uh, like a friendship where he's like sucking the energy out of. Yeah, I mean, there's like a lot of, you know, African folklore about soul stealers where, you know, these these creatures will come in the night and steal people's souls. It could be something along those lines. I'm pretty into this. Sort of like um, this type of thing lately, you know, between the vampires and that type of stuff. Okay. It's kind of an obsession right now. These are good takes. Um, I, I like that. I, you know, again, it speaks to something that we've been talking about in cycling over the last few years, which is like the chummy nature of these pro cyclists now. How like as American sports fans, we kind of want our like world-class athletes to, you know, dislike each other and take an antagonistic approach and maybe talk some smack. You know, maybe there's like a weigh-in where people stare at each other and like, you know, ah. and with Roglic and Pogacar, they're just hugging and high-fiving. And it's like, oh, man, you totally like ripped my heart out on the penultimate stage of the Tour de France where I was winning and looked like I was going to win and you just like made me look silly in front of the entire world but hey buddy hug bring it in for the real thing instead of just like giving the like dagger stare to to pogachar that did, that did not happen doesn't add up doesn't add up by the way i think conor mcgregor rides bikes so there's an opportunity yeah. there if you want some of that controversy bring him in uh, Sive, what do you make of our f- uh, friend Roglic do you think he will ever win the Tour de France and do you think that he may have some uh, like Spencer said some like evil juju hanging around his head um, well uh, my my take is probably not quite as creative as Spencer's I just think that uh, Roglic is a little bit accident prone I think what he's done is he's challenged uh, channeled his inner Geraint Thomas and he's just falling off at really inappropriate moments. Um, you know, he seems to just kind of slide out on descents, you know, willy-nilly, like he did it in Paris-Nice. Uh, he did it at the Vuelta. Then he kind of bumped with Sonny Cabrelli at the Tour and ended up in a, a gravel driveway. You know, I think he's he's maybe maybe we should see if he's spending too much time with Geraint Thomas and tell him that his friendship is not good for him. Um, and... Yeah, give, give him a few bike handling lessons and how not to slide out on a on a corner. Or he's not skiing enough these days. Maybe he needs to get back into the skiing. Yeah, I like that. Spencer, you spent some time with Garen Thomas. Did you find yourself like crashing into a city bus after uh, you had breakfast with him that day? No, 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 no. Um, I'm, it was it was quite fortuitous. He he got me my in to hit up this amazing uh, brunch that they had there on the on the Malibu coast. It was definitely some upper crust stuff. I was. Rubbing, rubbing elbows with the, with the rich and famous of, of, of Los Angeles. Hey, thank you, Geraint. Oh, the lads were chuffed. <laughs> um, we're, we've come to our last question on the list here. Um, and that involves Peter Sagan, who was a big star when I was leaving the Velo News in 2009. He was like, I, you know, this up and coming wunderkind. When I came back in 2016, he was the biggest star in the sport. And now, in 2021, he is still a major star. He does not still command the same, uh, I feel like, level of stardom and importance. And he's not the highest paid guy anymore and all these things. But he's still a, a big deal. And so my question for you is, what do you think Peter Sagan will best be remembered for when they're writing cycling history books 50, 100 years now and looking back at all the old technology, oh, electronic shifters, oh my God, that's so old. And, uh, you know, these grainy iPhone photos of people racing up the Tour de France with electric motorbikes in front of them. Uh, what are they going to remember Peter Sagan for most? Sive, I'm going to start with you. What will be the lasting uh, lasting memory, the lasting thing about Peter Sagan? Um, I think two things. One will be winning three world titles in a row. Um, you know, it was quite an amazing achievement. The other one will be him kind of throwing his arm up in the air every time somebody didn't work with him. Um, you know, that happened quite a lot. Um, and I think he kind of failed to realize that nobody was going to work with him because he was really good. Uh, and that's what happens when you're really good and you're the only really good rider, or, or not only, but, you know, 
the most the the best one by quite some margin people aren't going to work with you so it's best just not to get frustrated about it yeah the sylvain dillier did not learn that lesson jelly walleyes he did know that though Jelly Wallace. Jelly Wallace. That, that should have been my WTF winner. Yeah, Jelly Wallace. Uh, what do you make of this hoodie? Uh, 50, 100 years from now, when future uh, anthropologists are looking back at cycling in the uh, in 20, 20th, 21st, whatever century we're in now, what are they going to remember about Peter Sagan? I think he'll be remembered for his eloquent press conferences. Oh, God. Uh, I don't know what I do. Bike is bike and win is fun. Uh, normal. He'll be remembered for uh, throwing Cavendish into the fences, uh, even though, you know, he actually didn't do it, but that's what happened. And uh, he'll be remembered for his John Travolta Grease uh, video. I mean, come on. That was great. Very true. Uh, Spencer, lasting Sagan images? You know, so Sagan's going to this French team next year, right? Yeah. I think that his best years are still ahead of him. Ooh. Well, not in terms of cycling. <laughs> no, no, no. He's going to become the world's most famous baguette spokesperson. Okay. He's going he's gonna to sell so many baguettes, it's going to be ridiculous. He'll just revolutionize the world's taste for this classic French baked good. And it'll basically take over... You know, pretty much every cycling, every nation that follows cycling will, they'll be on the baguette program thanks to Peter Sagan's massive influence. So you said that Total total Direct Energy is now going to be a team sponsored by petrochemical and uh, carbohydrate. You, you know, it's one of these things. It always, it's a, it's a it's a shifting landscape. They get new sponsors all the time. Something comes up, perfect opportunity. He's, he's, a, he's a marketer's dream, and, and I think that's his future. I look forward to that because I will say uh, in his last year or two with Bora Hansgrohe, his Instagram feed, he's just become kind of a brand bot with his Instagram feed, and it's been real sort of dry, lame stuff of just like... Showers. Yeah, taking a shower, cooking some garbage on a stovetop. I think that Peter Sagan hopefully will be remembered for breathing some new life and entertainment and fun into this sport that had gotten a little too stuffy after years of Lance Armstrong's and Team Sky and, you know, always wanting to do things the right way and road cyclists are supposed to act X, Y, and Z. And here's this guy who wins races, grows his hair out long, does wheelies before everyone was doing wheelies and really was sort of the guy who dragged cycling into this new era. Because my theory is that hopefully with road cycling, the line blurring between road and mountain bike and gravel and what a cyclist is supposed to do and what a cyclist is supposed to be. Uh, more riders are going to realize that being an entertainer uh, in addition to winning races is going to be the name of the game and we're going to see more Chris Blevinses going out there and doing wheelies and, you know, Vanderpool's racing mountain bike and cyclocross and just, you know, this whole new wave of movement of cycling of people realizing it's all about the entertainment and hopefully people will then trace that back to the patient zero of entertaining cycling who was Peter Sagan even though his press conferences were awful and he didn't always work with everyone and you know what in the later part of his career he probably didn't win that many races um, I think that uh, remembering that Peter Sagan was fun will be uh, will be a good one um, guys and gals thank you so much for offering the takes actually you know as i look back on this there were a couple of inflammatory not ready for primetime weird takes in there but i'd say that most of these were pretty educated informative and enlightening takes and you all have passed the take test um and and contributed some good perspective to the podcast well you know, before I get out of here, I also just want to tell you all how much I appreciated working with you over the years and uh, everyone here in the Vel News staff. And, um, you know, Spencer, when I first came in, you were very much keeping Vel News going with your news reporting and your storytelling. And I saw you blossom into this great reporter. Um, Sive, you coming in in the last year has really boosted the energy and the perspective and um, coverage of women's racing and men's racing and just all sorts of racing here at Vela News. And Andy, I mean, I can't say enough. I could do a whole podcast about how you have, are, will continue to be the beating heart of Vela News and how I will always read your reporting from the races because I feel like you are the hardest working uh, cycling reporter, full stop. And um, listeners, 
readersofvelnews.com. All I can say is that it has been an absolute pleasure over these last five years to um, report and opine and write for you. And it, uh, you know, there aren't very many of these jobs left in the world of being a reporter, working for an independent media outlet, going out there into the world to try and tell stories about what's going on. And um, I just, I can't say enough about how much fun and how much, how much I've appreciated doing it for you. So um, thank you for tuning in. And, uh, you know, follow me on Twitter. I will continue to be in the family and I will continue to watch bike races, but there will be new life and new blood coming to VeloNews.com and the VeloNews podcast. And thank you so much. It's been a real treat. 